The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good morning. Uh, and welcome, everybody, to the uh, first scarf of uh, this term. We are absolutely um, delighted to have you here. Um, thank you for waking up early on this morning. And um, I am now going to introduce our presenter this um, this morning. And I'm really excited because I have the privilege of being the first person to be able to introduce Dr. Meg Collins-Stoop. Uh, in November 2020, she successfully defended her PhD dissertation in music composition. And this morning, she received uh, an email letting her know that her any edits that she had have been accepted. And so she has officially um, finished her PhD. So congratulations to Meg. And we're so excited to have you here this morning to present. Her dissertation is entitled Melting the Boundaries, the Integration of Ethnic Instruments into Western Art Music. Uh, she's a native New Yorker and she earned her master's degree in music composition from Queens College, City University of New York, and a bachelor's degree in music from Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. She is the founding director of the Adesso Choral Society, which is a select women's chorus which champions works by living composers and has served as president of the Connecticut Composers. Um, Meg, we're absolutely delighted to have you here with us this morning. And now I will hand it over to you uh, to give your presentation. Thank you, Courtney. Um... Thank you everyone for tuning in on this blustery morning. Maybe it's nice to be inside instead of outside running about. Um, we're gonna have that coffee here. Um, as Courtney said, uh, my compositions in my research at Trinity have been uh, focused on integrating ethnic instruments or non-Western instruments into ensembles with Western orchestral instruments. So I've written for the Illum pipes, the tar, the sand tour, Native American flute, the Zhao uh, and high and low D tin whistles. Now, composer Luigi Ulandini also writes cross-cultural cultural compositions with Shakuhachi and uh, Sheng, mainly Shakuhachi. Uh, he suggests that when a composer is writing for ethnic or non-Western instruments, there are two choices. One is to find someone who is quite proficient on that instrument and collaborate with them, work closely and learn from them in order to write for that instrument. And the other option is to play the instrument yourself. And in playing the instrument yourself, there are further two options. One is to immerse yourself in the traditional music, uh, get to know the genre very well and play that traditional music so that um, through understanding the idioms, uh, one can learn more about the mechanics of the instrument and um, the, the different characteristics and what would sound uh, typically natural or idiomatic to the instrument. And the other way of exploring the instrument is to just start from scratch sort of and see what sounds you can make. Now, uh, I've done both um, possibilities. When I've written for the Illum Pipes, I consulted with Master Piper Eamon Galda because I do not play the Illum Pipes. And when I've written for the Persian Tar and the Centaur, I've consulted with uh, Persian musicians um, 
Cheyenne Shahab Kui, uh, two brothers. But being a Western concept flutist myself, I'm able to explore on the many different ethnic uh, flutes. So um, there are a lot of similarities when you play Western concert uh, flute with the um, with ethnic flutes. For instance, the fingering will be quite similar, although they're in so many different keys that like uh, the same fingering for an F natural on the Western concert flute is a B natural on the Native American flute, which is, uh, if, if you know about scales, it's very far away and it's a big mistake to make. <laughs> now this here is, is a Zhao, and this is what I'm gonna concentrate mostly on today. Zhao, X-I-A-O, is a Chinese bamboo flute and um, it's got a vertical notch split end. Uh, so I blow across there. And this is very, very similar to when I play the Western concert flute, we split the airstream in the same way. But because of the shape, this head, head joint is bigger, it takes more breath to go across. And the fact that this uh, instrument is made of bamboo and it's rather long, although they come in many different sizes, producing a sound on this flute takes considerably more breath than it would on say a low D tin whistle that's roughly the same uh, size. Um, I'm gonna play three um, pieces of music for you today, one live. And the first one I'm gonna play is uh, a Chinese folk song called Lady Meng Zhang. And um, I'm gonna uh, this song is typical in structure of many Chinese folk songs in the sense that the opening section is quite slow and quite free in rhythm and embellished but not embellished a lot. The middle section is faster in strict time and a little bit more decorations or embellishment. And then the third section is quite a bit more uh, embellished. As a matter of fact, on the 16th notes, the semiquavers, there is a grace note for every single one. Blah, 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 like that. Instead of da, 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 da. <laughs> um, and a lot of the embellishments are the same as Western Constitute, like uh, a grace note or a trill or a mordant. Um, but one of them is distinctive. We end the note by stopping our breath and releasing our fingers simultaneously so that we have a pop at the end of the note. And the pitch is irrelevant. The percussive pop at the end of the note is uh, what is what is sought. And I learned this technique when I was in Hong Kong studying Chinese flutes, the Ditsi and the Xiao. And then when I came home and I started studying Native American flutes, I recognized that they had the same exact ornament. And in, in um, Native American music, it's called a liftoff. Here's my Native American flute. It's the same ornament. And as I said, the pitch at the end is not important. It's the popping sound. So now I'm going to play for you um, Lady Ming Zhang.
so that was a very typical Chinese folk song. And so I need to play this instrument, played as many of those types of songs as I could. Um, and then when I went to write other pieces for this instrument, uh, sometimes I incorporated some of these techniques and sometimes I went in, in a different direction. This first piece I'm going to play for you uh, that I've written is called Zephyr. And Zephyr means uh, westerly wind or a gentle breeze. And I'm capitalizing on the fact that this is a very breathy timbre. Um, it's written for three instruments, the zhao, a suspended cymbal, and a cello. And I have the suspended cymbal and the cello doing special techniques that will imitate breathy sounds also. For instance, on the cymbal, um, they'll take a coin and scratch it across the top. It makes like a rasping sound. Or they'll take a wire brush with one hand, they call a single hand roll. And with the cello, there's many techniques with the cello, it's using air noise, which means you're gonna bow, um, your bow will barely touch the string and hardly any pitch would be sound. It's gonna be sound more like a scratching air sound or silent fingering, but they don't bow, but they touch the strings. Or circular bowing, where they move the bow around like this as they're dragging across the str uh, strings. And so you hear quite a few harmonics mixed in with a raspy sound. And uh, in addition to that, on this instrument, I play an extended technique. I just blow over the edge. So that you have mostly just breath sound and not any pitches. Um, this recording that you're going to hear was performed in the National Concert Hall and the cymbal player is Richard O'Donnell and the cellist is Martin Johnson. Okay, Courtney, we can play Zephyr.
Richard O'Donnell on the cymbal and Martin Johnson on the cello. Uh, people in the audience today uh, who are familiar with Irish trad music might uh, have recognized a song that's been loosely woven into that, an Irish traditional song called the South Wind. Um, now, part of my exploration of this instrument was to play music from different genres on it. I tried to play Baroque flute music, music on this, and I played Hungarian folk tunes, and I played um, a lot of Irish tunes that I saw in a tin whistle book. And some of, when I played the South Wind, there's a lot of minor thirds in that. And it just seemed to me like uh, it was very suited to this instrument, because as you may have heard uh, in the first song that I played, Chinese music has, is characterized by a lot of minor thirds in the melody, which gives it a pentatonic feel. It's not actually pentatonic music because the seventh step of the scale is embedded in the uh, embellishment. But um, anyway, in that song, I thought that the South Wind, uh, which is also about wind, zephyr, breathy, um, was very similar to Chinese folk tunes. That's part of the reason I included it. This next, that was the first piece that I wrote for Zhao. This next piece is uh, represents a more in-depth exploration of this instrument because I wrote a suite of five movements called the Bird Suite. And it's written for a string quartet. Two percussion players are playing many different kinds of percussion instruments and Zhao. The middle movement of it is for Zhao solo. Um, so that's the recording that you're gonna hear. It's called Looms on the Lake. Um, and, and throughout the suite, even in the other five movements, uh, the, the musical material is divided between two realms. One is bird song uh, with short clips imitating birds like cuckoo, cuckoo, that kind of thing. And the other is atmospheric sounds that will um, create the background. Um, so because this movement is a solo movement, the Zhao had the responsibility to play both the bird song and the atmospheric sound. And I do that by dividing register and lengthening notes to create the atmosphere. And in the atmosphere section, a special technique uh, is used of me vocalizing into the flute while I'm singing. So you might hear sort of like a, um, a buzzy sound because I'm singing notes at the same time that I'm playing. And um, this was professionally recorded. So if I demonstrated it here, I don't think the sound would come across, but you're gonna be able to hear it in the, in the recording. Um, another extended technique, a further exploration of this instrument is that I took some aggressive tonguing articulation techniques from the Western concept flute and applied it to here. For example, um, starting a note with a k instead of a t. So creates the, um, the aggressive sound that I wanted to use to imitate a bird. And uh, in the same way, um, 
I start and end the note with a T. So tut, tut. And so I created my own notation to make, um, make this clear in the score that these were unusual uh, ways of articulating uh, this flute. And another one is when I'm vocalizing, I don't start the note with a tongue. I just start with an H in aspiration. Because if you sing and play the flute at the same time, that's gonna, it's too abrupt and too, um, it was not the sound that I wanted. So I have created a notation for that as well. They start the note without a tongue. Um, okay. We're ready to hear the, the middle movement of Bird Suite, and it's called Looms on the Lake.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, one uh, thing about that piece that I forgot to mention is that uh, naturally, I, I told you sometimes I'm singing into the flute, and I thought, well, if we have that element in, sometimes you got to get a chance to voice to just do it on our own without the flute. So sometimes in that piece, you heard me say, and that was uh, the voice. Um, I'm just going to end with one further comment from Luigi Ilandini, the man, the composer I spoke about in the beginning, who talked about um, the different ways you can get immersed in the study of the instrument in order to write cross-cultural music. Um, he also uses a term he called re-significance, which is when we do take an instrument and play the right music for it that is non-idiomatic, like just what you just heard, doesn't sound too similar to the Chinese folk song that I played at the start of this lecture. Um, so by exploring new sounds, you offer an expansion of the repertoire of the instrument and give it uh, what he calls, like I said, re-significance or um, an ability to see the instrument in a new context. So that's it. And if anyone has any questions, I would happy to be answered, happy to answer. Wow. Um, thank you so much, Meg. Um, that was really, really fascinating. Um, and thank you for letting us listen to those pieces. Um, as Meg was saying, we are now in the Q&A section. So um, as we've been writing to you, feel free to use the, the Q&A function to, to write in a question. Uh, you can also, if you'd like to um, ask your question yourself and the you know, Q&A function, just write you know, that you would like to do that and we can unmute you so that you can ask your question of Meg uh, in your own words. Um, so while we're waiting on those thoughts to percolate, uh, I actually have a few questions for you. Uh, wow, it's just really interesting. I, I, 
I guess I, I'm a singer. And so I was really fascinated by the, your use of vocalizations um, in that last composition uh, and the effect that that had. When, when did you start to, to play with that idea or did it come from um, techniques that you've studied in other places? Or was that something that you had a need for and so started playing with on your own? Well, um, it is certainly um, a technique that's not rarely, but not common either. It's, it's used by Western concert leaders. Not very much by me, but uh, I've heard it done lots of times and I've seen Bill Doddle demonstrate it lots of times. So it's a technique that's rather common to vocalize into your instrument. Um, but in writing this movement, uh, because it was a solo and because the, the movements surrounding it were uh, very different textures and sometimes sounded quite expansive because of the use of percussion and extended technique in the strings, I didn't want this movement to be any less um, a, a dense. And so I was looking for ways to create more variety even though I have a monodic instrument. And so this was a way of changing the timbre. What does monodic mean for those of us who do not know? One note at a time. So I did two notes at a time by singing. And yeah. I had to experiment a lot. Uh, my voice, I'm an alto too, and I'm five foot nine. So my voice is deeper than most women. So it's not difficult for me to sing a D below middle C. So when I experimented singing a middle D around, you know, I don't know if I hit the right pitch, but um, the same pitch as this one, it was sounding too buzzy, too much like a kazoo. So I put my own voice down one octave lower than what this one was playing. And so then I had more of a range and more depth to the sound that I was looking for. Wow, wow, that's so interesting. And um, when you're creating your compositions, um, because you're a, a flautist, you, you play the flute, do you begin with the flute and that melody line and then kind of layer in the other instruments on top of it? Or would, what, what is your process for approaching? That's an interesting question. Um, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> as a matter of fact, usually if I'm writing a piece for Western concert flute, I'll make sure that I don't have the flute in my hand. I don't want to write something that just falls under my fingers. And uh, many, many times when I've been in performance playing something that I wrote for flute, I'm like, oh my God, who wrote too hard to play? Because, <laughs> but, but if you, um, you don't have the flute in your hand, you might think of things that would be further afield and not come naturally. And when I'm composing, I don't necessarily think of a melody first. I think more commonly of a texture first. Uh, and so how thin or thick do I want the ensemble to be? And how, how much tension? Uh, and how much, mostly I'm thinking about tension and release rather than just the melody. Wow, that's really interesting. That's, wow, that's really, really interesting. And um, what made you interested in this, this type of research, the idea of bringing, uh, you know, Eastern music uh, flute into, and kind of combining it with like more Western style uh, traditional music? Um, what sparked your interest in that? You know what, um, I think mainly it was simply life experience. Um, so I'm, I'm not quite as young as I used to be. Many moons ago, I lived in Hong Kong and 
um, just thought, okay, I'm here. Might as well study those instruments. So I studied this as well as the Dixie, which is, you had great music playing in the beginning. I recognize that piece. That was written for the Dixie. That was a Dixie playing, not um, a Zhao. And the Air Who is a, is a cello. Anyway, that became part of my experience as a musician. Um, and then when I came home from Hong Kong, my flutes cracked, uh, the bamboo flutes that I had, and I couldn't play them anymore. And so I took the Chinese music, it's a different kind of notation, and played it on my Western flute. So that's where it began. And then um, my brother owned a store with lots of ethnic instruments, so I started playing the Native American flute. Then I moved to Ireland, where this land of tin whistles, you know. Um, so it's just that uh, I didn't understand why I wouldn't incorporate all these extra sounds and expand uh, the world of Western art music that way. Wow. And so what what was the difference that you, you that you heard or felt in and playing the the songs that were written for the Chow on your Western flute? I don't know if I said that right. I apologize if I didn't. Sure you did. No. <laughs> um, the difference. Uh, well, I had to figure out how to do the lift off that popping sound on the Western flute, and it's it's actually easier on an epic flute than it is on the Western flute. But also, um, wasn't that difficult a transition. But what was difficult was when I was reading the Chinese notation, I, I learned how to read it. So there's all kinds of uh, symbols and abbreviations and, and, and it's not difficult to read once you get the hang of it. But then in order to make it accessible to others, I transcribed it into European notation, you know, the dots and the lines. And that was the difficult part because the embellishments are so elaborate uh, and detailed that uh, it was like so many notes on a little page and it was not really a way you could abbreviate it. Um, anyway, that's part of my dissertation that I've written. Uh, I, I've transcribed Chinese music into Western European notation. But that actually was more difficult than just playing. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. Wow, that's really fascinating. All right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to other people's questions now. Thank you for indulging me. Um, Ruth Barton writes in and she asks, uh, would you like to talk about doing a practice-based PhD and how you integrated theory and history into your work? Oh, interesting. Oh, um, I wonder if I, if I have an answer to that. So um, for those of you who don't know, my PhD had two different parts. One is to compose uh, music Typically, you'd write about an hour and a half of music, and I have written eight works. And then you write words explaining about your, your music. And um, the, pre the, the research part is to, as composers, we're responsible to know what is out there and what's already been done and um, who's been doing similar things and how we might contribute something that's original. Um, so I certainly had to listen to a whole lot of uh, compositions written for uh, ethnic instruments, but um, they weren't always easy to find. Um, and then on top of that, I immersed myself in the study of the genre. So part of my dissertation is, is a separate chapter about history and the, um, the, the music of this culture. So I, I described Native American music and, this, and the structure and the mechanics of a Native American flute. I describe Irish trad music and the uh, mechanics of the Illin type. So uh, it's actually, it was quite a lot of research um, to support 
my new work in the composition. I'm not sure if that answers the question. You know, touches touches on it definitely. Oh, she actually she just wrote in. She said that was fine, and thank you. <laughs> um, I'm just gonna put it out there to anyone else. Uh, if there's anyone else who who has a question for Dr. Meg Collins Stoop, uh, please go ahead and write that. Oh, just as I speak, of course. Uh, so Sarah Jane Scaife has written in, and she's asked, "Do you find any link?" or similarity between the trills of Irish trad music with the elaborations that you describe in the Chinese flute? Yes, yes. Uh, across almost all of the genres that I've studied, the grace notes in traditional music, musics are going to be played much more quickly than they would be in Western art music. And that's certainly true of Irish traditional music where the grace notes are so quick that they're almost inaudible. There's a difference, however, in the function of grace notes. Uh, in Irish trad music, mainly it's to emphasize a beat. Um, so it's gonna be on the downbeat, the first beat of a measure, you'll have a grace note. Whereas in Chinese music, um, it's gonna emphasize uh, the minor thirds of the inner structure. Like that first song that I played, got an E minor triad built in before you get down to the D. So um, to make it sound pentatonic, emphasize the minor thirds, although the grace notes are on the notes of the E minor triad and not on the D. This is different again from Native American music where the grace notes will emphasize structural notes. So in Native American music, um, you'll play the tonic, which is most often the lowest note, repeated. And it'll just be repeated with embellishments like and those those uh, embellishments in Native American music will help you know what the home note is, help you know the key. Excellent. Wow, thank you so much. Um again, if you if you have any questions, oh Sarah Jane said fabulous. Thank you very much. Um if you have any questions for Meg, do just write them in. Um, I, I didn't know that the chat function would be working, but apparently it is. So you're welcome to use the chat function uh, or to use the Q&A function. Um, if you have any other questions for Dr. Stoop. 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 <laughs> I think I got it right the very first time. Um, Rhymes with hope. That's really lovely. <laughs> um, that's really lovely. All right, I don't, I don't see any more uh, questions coming in. Um, is there anything that you would like to share about your experience, um, about your work, before we kind of wrap up the session, um, and give you a round of applause? Um, no. Um, if you want to learn more about my music, you can go to my website, which is Meg Stoke spelled S-T-O-O-P, megstoke.com, or find me on Facebook where you'll be able to find my website after that. Um, written not just for Chinese instruments, but as I've said, for many different kinds of instruments. And some of those uh, links to be able to hear the sounds are on the website. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I typed in your website into the chat. Um, 
as you were telling us about it. So hopefully people can access that easier. Um, Brian Coates wrote in, and wrote, wrote in and said, thank you for a really interesting talk. Um, oh, and, I, welcome, and I can say that, that that is probably the sentiments of everyone who, who joined in today. So thank you, thank you for so having much. Me. Um, and we will see you in two weeks at the next SCARF. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.